Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 128, Ehrman and Bird on How Jesus Became God, Part 1. In this episode, I'm going to give my review of an interesting recent debate, or rather, point-counterpoint forum. There's kind of a contemporary prejudice against doing old-school formal debates. I don't know, people think they're unfriendly or something. It is a debate, but a less formal debate, and it's between two very interesting people, the first of which is Bart Ehrman, and I'm going to assume that he doesn't need an introduction to you. The second is Dr. Michael F. Bird. He's a lecturer in theology at Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia, and the author of a great number of books. And he's one of the authors of the response book, How God Became Jesus, The Real Origins of Belief in Jesus' Divine Nature. My goal in this episode is to give you the juicy bits, to give you the good parts, and to kind of summarize the rest, and to give you a different perspective on the issues that they're discussing. Back in 2014, I made a couple of posts where I pointed out a division in contemporary scholarship about the Bible and early Christian history. And in these posts, I discussed three claims that are an inconsistent triad. That is, they are three logically inconsistent propositions. You can accept any two of them, but then you must, to be consistent, deny the third. So any two of them imply that the third one is false. And these are as follows. Claim number one, the New Testament Gospels agree in their core claims about Jesus and God. 2. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't teach that Jesus is God. And 3. John teaches that Jesus is God. The interesting thing about this inconsistent triad is, you might think that all three of them are obvious, or at least that there are good reasons to believe each one of the three. So for the first one, the New Testament Gospels agree in their core claims about Jesus and God. Of course, that has to be so if the doctrine of scriptural inerrancy is true. But never mind that. Set that off to one side. Suppose inerrancy is not true, and suppose that some of the Gospels were not written by who tradition says they were written by. Still, they're all coming out of first century apostolic circles, right? It'd be really surprising then if one of the Gospels said that Jesus wasn't raised from the dead and the other one said that he was raised. It would be really surprising if one of the Gospels said that the one true God is the God of the Jews and the other ones said the one true God is, I don't know, the God of the Persians. It would be really shocking if three of the Gospels said that Jesus is the promised Messiah sent by God and one of them disagreed with that. Why? Just because they come from the same circle of people. And it's a small circle. And these people knew each other and interacted with one another. And they were all taught by the same guy. So if you think Jesus is a competent teacher, you'd be surprised if his apostles are running around saying very different things. Or even if books could become popular that come from the circles of the apostles that are saying very different things. Not about the details, but about the core claims, about the whole point of it all. For instance, claims like that Jesus raised from the dead or that he was the Messiah. So you would expect one to be true. What about the second one, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't teach that Jesus is God? Well, they don't call him God. God seems to be somebody else in those Gospels. 
It's someone to whom Jesus prays. It's someone who speaks to Jesus and who talks about Jesus as if Jesus is someone else. If you say, well, I don't mean that Jesus is God himself when I say the Gospels teach that he's God. I mean that Jesus is divine or has a divine nature. Okay, but they don't straightforwardly teach that Jesus is omnipotent or that he's omniscient. And they have things which on the face of them seem inconsistent with those claims. Those are essential divine features. That's part of being divine, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not explicitly teach that Jesus created the world or that he existed before the world was created. Yes, I know there are some fancy interpretations that try to get around this, but let's talk about what they explicitly say. They don't say any of those things. And the things that are in the Gospel of John that make people think that the Gospel of John teaches that Jesus is God himself or that he's divine in the same way that God is divine, those things in John, like where Jesus says, I am, or is arguably called God, those things don't exist in the Synoptic Gospels. So on the face of it, it seems true that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't teach that Jesus is God. The third one is that John teaches that Jesus is God. I mean, isn't he called God in the first verse? Doesn't Thomas address him as my Lord and my God at the end? Doesn't Jesus say, I am? What more do you need, you know? That's how a lot of people look at it. Okay, but if you agree that the Gospels are consistent in their core claims, this would be a core claim that Jesus is God, or any claim about how they're related would be a core claim, right? So if they agree in their core claims, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't teach that Jesus is God, then it must be false that John teaches that Jesus is God. That's one way to go. You can deny three and hold on to one and two. On the other hand, you could take one and three and deny two. You could say the Gospels are consistent in their core claims, and John teaches that Jesus is God. So I'm going to deny that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't teach that Jesus is God. No, actually, they must teach that too. That's another way out. Or you could affirm two and three and deny one. You could call it the skeptical way out or the liberal theology way out. There's not a really great name for it. It's just that you think in the first century, there was really serious core development in the theology and Christology of the Jesus movement. And so in mid-century, they weren't saying that Jesus is God. And toward the end of the century, when John was written, all of a sudden now they're saying that. That's the view that Dr. Bart Ehrman takes. Now, to be fair, Dr. Ehrman's position has evolved and gotten a little bit complicated. I have a link on the blog post where he explains this. His view is not exactly that Jesus is, quote, not God in the synoptics, but rather that the synoptics portray him as divine in a lesser sense than John portrays him as divine. Okay, but if we are talking about divine in the highest sense, then my point holds. How about denying two? On the face of it, it doesn't look very promising because Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't seem to say that Jesus has a divine nature, that he has all the divine attributes. They treat God like somebody else. They don't call Jesus God. Still, people argue, hey, look, he forgives sins. He's worshipped. He walks on water. He casts out demons. And he fulfills all these prophecies that were spoken about Yahweh in the Old Testament. So if Jesus is fulfilling them, what the writer is doing is that they're implying that Jesus is Yahweh himself, or that he's equal to Yahweh, never mind what that means. 
This you could call the Catholic response, the small c Catholic response. And this is what a lot of current day evangelical scholars have done. This is the view of Dr. Michael Byrd. My preferred way is the third way. I deny that the fourth gospel teaches that Jesus is God, whether that means that he's God himself or that he has a divine nature so that he's divine in the same way that God, the one God, the Father is divine. John does not teach those things. He distinguishes strongly and clearly between Jesus and God throughout the whole book in a bunch of different ways. And the passages that people seize on, they take out of context and they misunderstand. They selectively pick out the parts of John they like, and they say, see, the book confirms our theory that Jesus is God. Well, I say, no, it doesn't. And I think a really careful, hard look at John bears this out. I've talked about the Gospel of John in several places. The place where I give my kind of look at the whole book is Trinity's Podcast 70, The One God and His Son, According to John. That was a presentation I gave to the Society of Christian Philosophers. I also talk about it particularly in some other presentations. I'll link these on the blog post for this episode. One's called, Who Should Christians Worship? Another is called, God and His Son, The Logic of the New Testament. Anyway, my way out is a minority way out, to be sure. It's a minority report. I don't want to say with people like Dr. Bart Ehrman that the Christian message was radically changed within about the first 50 or 70 years. And I also disagree with Dr. Michael Byrd that you can somehow squeeze the idea that Jesus is God out of the synoptics, or that he's divine in the same way that the Father is divine. So that's my general outlook. I just state it here so that at the outset you know where I'm coming from. When the Trinity's podcast returns, the debate. Okay, let's rumble. The first thing Dr. Ehrman does is tell you that he's not going to talk at all about theology. He's going to stick to history, and he just wants to explore when did Jesus' followers start to say that he was God. And when they started to believe he was God, what did they mean by that? You might think there's only one thing you can mean. If Jesus is God, that, that just means one thing, right? Wrong. Throughout Christian history, there have been numerous ways that people have understood how Jesus is God. And so saying he's God is the beginning, but it's not the end of the question. Yes, well said. Here's a different way to put it. Lots of people apply the word God to Jesus, whether they address him as God or describe him as God or as a God. They mean a lot of different things by that, and philosophers have explored different ways of understanding those things. Let's see what Dr. Ehrman has in mind and what Dr. Bird has in mind. Dr. Ehrman then brings up the whole controversy that led up to the Council of Nicaea in the year 325, the so-called Arian controversy. And I'm going to assume that you, the listener of the Trinity's podcast, are familiar with that. If you're not familiar with it, 
We did some very informative episodes on it way back, episodes 29, 30, and 31. So check those out if you want to see what the hubbub was all about. After presenting the results of the Council of Nicaea, so that Jesus is God from God, true God from true God, he's eternally existed, and he has one substance or essence with the Father. Then he goes back and contrasts this with the gospel according to Mark, which most scholars agree is the earliest gospel that we have. Mark has a very interesting and compelling view of Jesus. Among other things, Mark certainly thinks that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark's gospel begins by saying that it is the gospel of Jesus the Messiah, and throughout the gospel, Jesus is called the Son of God. He then goes off into what I inclined to think is a bit of a tangent. He claims that in the gospel of Mark, nobody knows who Jesus is, and he thinks this is pretty strange. So, obviously, the author knows who Jesus is. He says right in the beginning that this is about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. But he thinks the characters don't know this. Well, it's certainly true that the characters are trying to figure him out and trying to make sense of him. But of course, as Dr. Ehrman mentions in chapter 8, when Jesus asks, who do you say I am? Peter says, you are the Messiah. And of course, this is understanding exactly who Jesus is. Dr. Ehrman makes a big point that immediately following this, Peter rebukes Jesus for saying that he's going to be killed. Okay, so Peter doesn't know that he's going to be a suffering and dying Messiah. Well, sure, they haven't figured that out until after it happens, but that comes as a shock in all the four Gospels. So I don't really see any big point here about the characters not knowing who he is. Peter does, and presumably some of the other disciples do too. And of course, there's the centurion at the end. In any case, this is what Dr. Ehrman is driving at. This is a long way from the controversy over Arianism. When Jesus says, who do people say that I am? The disciples don't reply, well, some people think that you're equal with the Father and have always existed, and there never was a time before which you did not exist. And, well, some of us actually think that you, we think the opposite. We think, in fact, you did come into being at some point in the eternity past. That is not the issue. It's nowhere near the issue. It is not discussed in the Gospel of Mark. It's a completely different business. And so my question, how do you get from point A to point B? Dr. Ehrman then argues that in Jesus' life, his disciples didn't believe that he was God, but they came to believe he was God after his life, and what changed their mind was they came to believe that he had risen from the dead. Now, immediately when presented with this thesis, you should ask, what does he mean, believed to be God? In other words, this is point that they didn't think that he was God himself, and that later they came to believe that Jesus and God are one and the same, that Jesus is God himself. I don't think that's his point. I think his point is that they didn't believe that he was divine in some significant sense, which he doesn't spell out, and they came to believe that he was divine. Still, if he was raised from the dead, why would it follow that he was divine in any significant sense? He argues that people came to believe in the resurrection because they believed that they had experienced the risen Jesus. Sure, that's highly plausible, as Dr. Ehrman points out then how do you get from seeing a resurrected man to the belief that he's divine? How do you get the conclusion from that premise? In answer, Dr. Ehrman makes some interesting and I think relevant points. First of all, they didn't just believe that he was resuscitated, but that he was raised to immortality. And not only that, he wasn't going to roam the earth as an immortal from here on out. 
they believed that he was exalted to heaven. What did people in the ancient world think about somebody who after their death had been taken up to heaven? It's quite clear what ancient people thought about that because we have numerous indications about what ancient people thought about that. The Romans believed that the founder of the city of Rome, Romulus, had been taken up to heaven at his death. They started worshiping him as a god. He became the god Quirinus, who was one of the three main deities, one of the three main gods for ancient Rome. This was Romulus, the man, taken up to heaven, became a god. Not just in Roman circles, but in Jewish circles. There were Jewish thinkers at the time of the New Testament who thought that Moses had been taken up into heaven at his death and had become a god. We have clear evidence of this from Philo, the, the Jewish uh, philosopher who taught in Alexandria, Egypt. Philo wrote several books about Moses, in one of which he says that when he died, he was taken up into heaven and he became a divine being. He became a god-like figure. Not just pagans, but also Jews thought an exalted figure who went up to heaven when he died became a god. Jesus was thought to have been a person who went up to heaven. What are the followers of Jesus supposed to think if Jesus has gone up to heaven? Well, they think what anybody would think. They think that he had been made a divine being. And so the earliest Christological views, in other words, the earliest views of who Christ was, are views that at the resurrection, God made Jesus a divine being. It was at the resurrection that Jesus became a divine being. It's at the resurrection that Jesus became the Son of God. Again, this isn't just something that I've made up. You can find it in your Bibles. There's a speech of Paul in the book of Acts, chapter 13, verses 32 through 33. This is what Paul says. The promises God made to our forefathers, he has now fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus from the dead. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. By raising Jesus from the dead, he's fulfilled the promises because of the scripture that says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. What is the today? It's the day of the resurrection. That's when God made Jesus the son of God. Or as Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, that at his resurrection, God made him both Lord and Christ. The earliest followers of Jesus thought that it was at the resurrection that God made Jesus into a divine being. A lot of interesting points there, but notice one thing. We've switched now from talking about Jesus is God, which may be taken to be that Jesus is God himself, that they're numerically one. We're now talking about a divine figure or a God with a small g, which is to say a being which is like the one God in some way. What does that mean? Presumably to be divinized or to be made divine is to be made immortal. So you're not subject to death and aging and disease. You're never going to lose your life. And presumably you've now gained considerably in power and knowledge. Okay, but being a god in that sense doesn't require nearly as much as being a god in the monotheistic sense. A unique, uncreated creator of the world. Unlimited in knowledge, power, and goodness. The source of all else. It doesn't require being that. Of course, you could never be made into that. You could never be promoted to that. That's just obviously impossible. 
But there's nothing obviously impossible about a human being being made immortal, and even being put in a position where God wants you to be religiously honored or worshipped. About being made the Son of God at the point of resurrection on that very day, this is an interesting claim, and we'll come back to it later. Dr. Ehrman points out that it's called an adoptionist Christology. Is he right that the earliest layer of the New Testament has an adoptionist Christology? He also makes the point that in ancient times, in some cases, the adopted child would be of a higher status than the natural child. So to make Jesus be adopted isn't any kind of low-down, second-best Son of God status. It's actually more like being the right-hand man. It's a very high status under the Father. The adopted son might in fact be the chief heir, someone with privileges over all the other sons and daughters. Dr. Ehrman then mentions a thesis propounded by the great 20th century Bible scholar, the Roman Catholic Raymond Brown, specifically in his book called The Birth of the Messiah. And this is the thesis that the more Christians thought about Jesus as the Son of God, the more they pushed back the point at which he became Son. Initially, they thought he became son at the point of his resurrection. Then they said, no, maybe the baptism. Some of the Gospels have God saying, this is my son at that point. No, that's not early enough. How about his miraculous conception in Mary, like in Matthew and explicitly in Luke? Luke says that he will be called the son of God because God caused Mary to become pregnant. Of course, not in the normal way. But then they pushed it back even farther, all the way to eternity past. Two comments about this. It's not clear to me how significant of a shift all this is. It's not clear to me this shift is anything more than terminological. Look, if they thought he was from eternity predestined to be God's son, then in a sense he was already God's son in God's mind from the beginning. And so he would, in a sense, already be God's son at any point in his life. Of course, he hadn't yet come into that glorious reign post-resurrection. Whether you want to say he became son at that point, or he became son when he began his ministry as the Messiah, or he was the son all along, I don't really see why it matters for anything. Why is this anything more than a terminological point? It's just when do you want to bestow that title on him? If he is God's Messiah, if he has been picked out from birth to be God's Messiah, then in a sense, he's Messiah all along. But if a Messiah is a ruler in a glorious position, in a high position, okay, then he's not Messiah until he's at God's right hand. In another sense, he's not the Messiah yet. If the Messiah is the king of Israel and the king of the world who sits on David's throne, well, in, in another sense, he's not the Messiah yet. If being the Son of God entails all of that, then he's still working on it, so to speak. I don't really see why anything substantial is at issue. Now, about the idea that he's been the Son of God from eternity past, Dr. Ehrman makes a great point, which is that this is one thing to say that there was a human, a real human being, virgin-born or not, to say that a real human was promoted to a kind of divinity, to being immortal and in a glorious position next to God. To say that a human is divinized isn't that shocking. This is something surprising that a divine being becomes human. Depending on what you mean by a divine being, this second scenario of incarnation may seem impossible for a bunch of different reasons. For one thing, it's not clear that you can be a human being if you would have existed whether or not anything had ever been created. In any case, in Dr. Ehrman's view, only the fourth gospel teaches incarnation. 
The story has changed radically from a human who gains eternal life and a special position of sonship under God to a God, basically, or a divine being, if you want to use the current weaselly term, a divine figure who adds humanity to his current nature or essence. Yeah, that's a huge shift. And it looks like it's a more problematic claim. And so on the face of it, it'd be surprising if John was changing the story that much, especially if you think that the fourth gospel was written by one of the 12 apostles. Now, there's an interpretation of John chapter 1, which I've never seen Dr. Ehrman interact with in any way. I'm not even sure he's looked into it. And in brief, this is the interpretation that the Logos there is like wisdom in the Old Testament and like God's Word in the Old Testament and in some of the apocryphal books. It's God's Word by which He made all things. It's this which is eternal and with Him, like wisdom in Proverbs 8. And it's this which is expressed in the man Jesus. So on this other reading, the Logos is not personally identical to Jesus. It's just God. It's His wisdom that's with Him and which gets expressed in Jesus. God's wisdom is that through which God created. It's God's wisdom which was the source of life and light for all humankind. It's the true light that gives light to anyone, and yet people did not recognize this wisdom even when it came to its own people. Of course, people who believed in God's wisdom and God's word became his children. And in the fullness of time, this word slash wisdom became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Not literally, it's a divine attribute or a divine command, something like that, something intrinsic to God, but metaphorically. I think Dr. Ehrman needs to do his homework. There have been a number of important, in many cases, big heavyweight scholars, most of them Unitarians, who have held this view. And you see this view propounded by people like Sir Anthony Buzzard and other biblical Unitarians today. We need to ask the question, is adopting this reading of John 1 well-motivated, and does it make more sense than thinking that John has a radically different picture than Matthew, Mark, and Luke? I think Dr. Ehrman is right that Matthew and Luke seem to presuppose that Jesus has come into existence at the time of his miraculous conception. Dr. Ehrman then recounts some of the debates in the first several centuries among Christians about how to understand Jesus and his relationship to God. A couple of views that are non-starters as far as the New Testament is concerned are docetism or docetism, the view that Christ only seemed to be a real human, but was in fact just this merely divine being, not human. Problem with that is the New Testament explicitly asserts that he's human and everywhere presupposes it and denounces people who deny that he's human. He mentions then separationism, this idea that you have to separate the man, Jesus, from some kind of heavenly being, an eon or something, the Christ that came down upon him for part of his life. There's no distinction between Christ and Jesus in the New Testament. That's the same person. They're both a human person. 
Then he mentions what he calls modalism. A more interesting view in some ways is a view that scholars have called modalism. This for a long time was the standard view in Christianity. Even its opponents said most people held to this view. Even the leaders of the Church of Rome held to this view at the end of the second century. It's called modalism because it says that God exists in three modes. Now, just like I myself, Bart Ehrman, just like I myself personally, I am at one and the same time, I am the son to my father, I'm the brother to my sister, and I'm the father to my children. I am a son, a brother, and a father at the same time. And God's like that. God is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, but there's only one of him. There's not three of him. I'm not three different persons. I'm one person. I'm son, brother, father. God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So this is a view called modalism because God exists in three modes of existence. This view ended up losing out too, even though it, it was uh, very popular a long time and possibly people today still hold some view like this, but it ended up losing out. It ended up losing out because surely the father and the son are different from one another. If you're the father of a son, you can't be the son that you're the father of. They have to be different. You know, when Jesus was on earth, he sometimes would pray to God the Father. He wasn't just talking to himself. This view ended up being seen as problematic as well. This modalist view was popular uh, in Rome especially and was the view of the bishops of Rome, people who would have later become the pope. And eventually then, it was turned back by people who held to a different view. Before we get to that different view, I need to make some comments about what he's calling modalism. Here, I think he's too uncritically accepting recent theological lore. What he tells you is modalism is what you can look up in any theological dictionary and what people standardly think. It's in fact very difficult to figure out what these particular mainstream Christians thought. What they were called in ancient times was monarchians. And we don't have any of their writings. We only have all these hostile writings, and they're not entirely consistent. And as far as I can tell, they are not all saying the same thing. What they have in common is they reject the Logos theories, which were then becoming popular in the second half of the 100s. These are theories that interpret John 1 as that eternally this Logos, which is the pre-human Jesus, is with the Father, and the Father, that is God, didn't directly create, but it was by means of, it was through this Logos that he created that was a theory that started to really gain currency in the second half of the 100s, and it got a lot of impetus, arguably, from Platonic philosophy, and possibly also from some rival Gnostic views. The bulk of Christians did not find this obvious. They said, we believe in one creator. You've got two gods. We only believe in one god. Probably a majority rejected it. I'm not sure this is one standard view, though. In his book called The Philosophy of the Church Fathers, Harry Ostrin Wolfson distinguishes three different types of views of God and Jesus that went by the name monarchianism. I can't go into it here, but it's a very interesting and difficult subject. So it's not clear this is one view, it's not clear it was the standard view, although opposition to Logos theology was quite widespread, according to Tertullian and Origen. And has this view lost out? Well, one this Pentecostal view is not popular. But what I call a one-self interpretation of standard Trinity language is very popular. On this view, Father and Son are different, yes, but they're just different modes or something like that of the one God. So they're the same God, in fact, they're the same one self, but that self lives 
and manifests in different ways. That's one interpretation of the standard Trinity formulas. It might even be the most popular one. It's the one you get in the two most famous Trinitarian theologians in the 20th century, Bart and Rahner. Dr. Ehrman continues. It was turned back by people who held to a different view, the Trinity. It was in the context of arguing about modalism that one of the church fathers, a man named Tertullian, devised the term Trinity. It is true that Tertullian is the earliest person on record to use the Latin term Trinitas. It's not true that Tertullian was a Trinitarian, properly speaking. He didn't believe in a tripersonal God. He did believe that God, the Father, the one true God, a finite time ago, shared a portion, not the whole, of his special kind of material substance, which Tertullian calls spirit, with the Son and then with the Spirit, while all the while keeping that material for himself, too. This is a bizarre view, but it's a Unitarian view, as I explain in a forthcoming article in the European Journal for Philosophy of Religion called Tertullian the Unitarian. You can hear me present an earlier version of this paper in Trinity's podcast number 11. Back in Tertullian's day, Trinity was a plural referring term. It just referred to God and then his Son and his Spirit. And it didn't imply that they are one being or that they are one God or that they are completely equal to one another, ontologically speaking. So in this place, he's repeating some common lore and it's preventing him from fully seeing the development of these theological traditions. So then he describes the doctrine of the Trinity as he understands it. He basically says it's contradictory nonsense, but it's supposed to be because it's a mystery. And this is what Christians think. Well, it isn't that simple. There are dueling interpretations. See my Trinity entry in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy if you want to see some different ways that serious thinking Christians try to work it out. It's not the case that all of them just say, yep, it's an apparent contradiction, what can you do? That is what some of them say, of course. I call those Mysterians. And then about the fully developed doctrine of the Trinity, as he understands it, Dr. Ehrman says this. My point is, the early Christians did not think this. You will not find this doctrine in the New Testament. This doctrine is a later doctrine that developed out of earlier views. The earliest Christians came to believe that Jesus had been exalted to God's right hand at his resurrection, and they thought that therefore God had made him a divine being. 300 years later, they were saying that Jesus had always existed, that he was co-eternal with the Father, he was co-omniscient with the Father, and that he, in fact, was God Almighty himself, the creator of all things. Thank you very much. And about that, all I can say is, that's right. Well said. Now we have what I take it is a rebuttal from Dr. Bird. G'day. Yes, I will use that charming Aussie accent to win over my audience. His first point is basically, of course there was development. These were Christians struggling to try to find the proper grammar, the proper terminology for understanding who Jesus is. Okay, but... It wasn't just that, right? It wasn't just development of vocabulary. There are clashing views here, and there are new views that come on the scene and go off the scene. So to make this all just the inevitable march towards Constantinople, I don't think is right. He then gives us a promissory note for what he is going to argue later when it comes to his main talk. 
one thing that emerges in the Gospel of Mark is that he's not merely a human Messiah. I don't think he's even a figure who has been made divine or adopted to divine sonship at his baptism. I'll explain more of that in my talk later on. But for now, what I want to say is I think there might be a little bit more going in Mark's Gospel than that. For example, you pointed out, Bart, that in the first half of Mark's Gospel, nobody knows who he is. But there are some beings who know who he is. The demons know who he is. When Jesus rocks up, they say, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. The question that I have in my mind is, and hopefully Simon will answer this, how do they know that? Is there kind of like a, a, a demonic version of Twitter? You know, you know, watch out. <laughs> watch out for the crazy Gal uh, Galilean guy with a beard. He is whooping our butt something fierce. Uh, how do they know who he is? Uh, how do they know he's come to destroy them? And certainly when we get to the end of the Mark's Gospel at the trial scene, there is this incredible moment where Caiaphas finally asks Mark who he is. And so, look, are you the son of the Blessed One or what? And Jesus responds in language which combines Daniel 7, 13, Psalm 110, and those two texts have one common theme, and that is someone being enthroned beside the Lord Yahweh. So that's a, that's, that's a very interesting thing. And that then creates this ambiguity that Jesus, he somehow identified with Israel's kurios, Israel's Lord. That's something we see in the narrative. Identified with. In one sense, to identify things is to say that they're same in the one thing. Who's this Barry Obama? Oh, it's Barack Obama. Oh, okay, that's who he is. That's identifying one thing with another, saying, well, in fact, you're talking about the same thing there. You're referring to it maybe in different ways or by a different name. That's not a theme of Mark's gospel. No, absolutely not. There's nothing like that there. What is there is Jesus being identified with God in the sense of associated together with God. Like the kinds of things God does, Jesus does, like heals and forgives sins and appears in heavenly glory, or at least is destined for heavenly glory. He's the savior of sinners, like Yahweh. But in Mark, Yahweh is the one true God, and that's the one who Jesus calls Father. The author doesn't say that Jesus is Yahweh. He does identify Jesus with Yahweh in the sense of associating them. But I think in Dr. Bird's mind, this somehow supports a, quote, high Christology. I don't see how it can, but let's let him keep going. The other thing Bart brings up is pointing out how the exaltation of Jesus has an affinity with the exaltation of other figures from antiquity, like Romulus and Moses, according to Philo. And again, this, this is perfectly true. One thing I tell my students is you cannot understand how Christianity is different from Greco-Roman religion until you first understand how they are similar. And there are genuine analogies and similarities. Certainly, if you read a passage like Acts 13, 33 to 34, there is exaltation language. This man, Jesus, has been exalted to divine status. The question is, is that all they believe? Was that the limits of their belief? Do they compact everything around that they believe nothing more? That's the bit I'm not so sure about. So they believe that Jesus was fully God or that he had divine nature, but they didn't think this was worth saying? That's hard to swallow. 
That's going to need some arguing for. He then argues that even if you're raised from the dead, why would that make people think you're divine? Even if you're raised from the dead and exalted to heaven, why would that make people think you're divine? Aren't there figures in Asian Jewish literature which are raised to heaven and which are not supposed to be worshipped? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Although, to be raised to heaven, or to be given eternal life or made immortal, that isn't the same thing as being raised to God's right hand. And about Philo, remember Philo is this first century Jewish Alexandrian Bible commenter. Dr. Bird pushes back in an interesting way. It is true. Philo says Moses becomes God, but he's, he, he makes the emphasis he is God to Israel. He has God-like power over Israel. In fact, Philo goes out of his way to specify that he is not God in the same way like the Father. Because Moses does not have control over nature the same way Israel's God did. So he has God-like power and status over Israel, but he doesn't seem to be exalted in the same sense that the Father is. That's a great point, but it cuts both ways. The mainstream Catholic authors before Nicaea in most cases, sharply distinguish between Jesus and God. They distinguish between the sense in which Jesus is divine and the sense in which God is divine. The sense in which Jesus divine for most of them does not require that Jesus is unoriginated. It doesn't require for many of them that he's eternal. It doesn't require for many of them that he's all-knowing or that he's all-powerful. So yes, it matters quite a lot in what sense is Jesus thought to be divine. Before the Council of Nicaea in 325, and I think for a good while afterwards, there were a lot of mainstream Christians, a lot of Catholic Christians, who thought that Jesus was divine, even though he pre-existed and created the world, but not divine in the same way that the Father was divine, not to the same degree or in the same way. Okay, well then they're not the same God, and they're not believing then in the, quote, full deity of Jesus. And finally, Dr. Bird closes with an argument that I've not run across before. Here's what he says. Raymond Brown was a great scholar. I really like him. I've learned a lot from his works. But he's not the only show playing in town. There's another great critical scholar I like called John Knox, a scholar from the mid-20th century. He argues that Jesus' pre-existence is what the disciples inferred from his resurrection. So that, he doesn't think it was something that developed later. He thinks pre-existence is something that they inferred on the resurrection. Because if Jesus has ascended into heaven, then in retrospect, he must have descended down in the first place. That could be the type of logic that is being employed. That's some interesting logic. I'm going to have to get out my old friend, the LogicBot 3000. Let me just uh, turn him on here. Uh, dust him off a little bit here. He's... Um, I haven't used him in a while. I usually just do the logic in my head. Let me see here. I am the LogicBot 2000. Please state your argument. Okay, LogicBot, thanks. There's only one premise here. It is 
Jesus was exalted to a heavenly position after his resurrection. And the conclusion is Jesus existed in heaven before he became incarnate. Your argument is invalid. Oh. Invalid. So, in other words, the premise doesn't support the conclusion at all to any degree. It's perfectly consistent to believe the premise and to deny the conclusion. Yeah, well, that's a head-scratcher. That's a real shame if the famous Dr. Knox was actually reasoning in that way. I hope there was some missing premise in there that made this a valid argument that Dr. Bird uh, didn't mention this one time. There must be some premise that he's leaving out there, LogicBot. Let's try inserting an extra premise. What if we, again, have the first premise, and the second premise is Jesus is exalted to a heavenly position only if Jesus, in eternity past, enjoyed an exalted position in heaven. And then the conclusion is, therefore, Jesus was exalted in heaven in eternity past. How about that, LogicBot? Congratulations, your argument is valid. Okay, good. That's valid, but then... Of course, we have to ask, why on earth would anybody believe that second premise? It's not supported by experience. How could it be? It's not supported by scripture in any obvious place. Where would scripture give a conditional statement like that? And it's not self-evident. It's not just an evidently true principle of logic or mathematics or metaphysics. So then, it's hard to see why anybody could have a reason to believe that premise. But if we don't have that premise, we just have an invalid argument. We just have a big old fat non-sequitur. Maybe I'll have to look for this Knox and see if he gave any reason that we should believe that premise or something like it. Something that would get us from the one premise that Dr. Bird states to the conclusion that Dr. Bird states. Finally, Dr. Bird addresses this matter of the Trinity. And didn't that doctrine arise rather late, like in the 4th century? is completely right. Views of the Trinity did develop. They were contentious. The question was, whose way of telling the story is the most compelling and the most coherent? What explains both the biblical texts, but what is it as well explains their experiences? And if you go through the text, then, it, then that really is the question, which is the best way of putting it? I mean, if you read the baptism story as, as, as a modalist, as Bart pointed out, it's ridiculous. It becomes a, a moment of divine ventriloquism. It might be a good vaudeville show, but it doesn't make good Christology. Similarly, if you take the Great Commission in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, therefore baptize them in, in what has to go in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. No one, though, would it baptize in the name of a deity, a creature, and an impersonal force. Uh, it, it wouldn't make a lot of sense to do that. Well, it might not make sense to Dr. Bird, but it does make sense to biblical Unitarians who baptize using that formula. Why does he think it doesn't make sense, though? It can't be because that formula suggests that the three of them are the same God, because that's a message that mainstream Christians didn't get for centuries after the Gospel of Matthew was written. It can't be that it obviously suggests that the three are absolutely ontologically equal, that they're equal in power, knowledge, goodness, and so on, because that message was not received by serious Bible readers for centuries. His point, I take it, is that it makes no sense in a ceremony like baptism to invoke three from very different ontological categories, that is, a god and a creature, those are both beings or substances or entities, and then as a third, a force. 
a mere property or power, or maybe an expression of a power? How can you mix ontological categories like that? Well, what exactly is the problem? Consider what Paul does in Ephesians 4. I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who was above all and through all and in all. Let's see, what ontological categories do we have there? One body, that's a group of humans. One spirit, well, we won't argue about what category that goes in just now. One hope of your calling. Hope is a mental state or mental event. It's in response to belief in the message of the good news of the kingdom. One Lord, that's Jesus. One faith, again, mental attribute. One baptism, one ceremony or one type of initiation ceremony. Oh, and then also one God and Father of all. How can he mix up things of such different ontological statuses? Well, he's exhorting them to think about all of those things, how they have all of those things in common. Yes, things of very different kinds. Now, if you were going to swear somebody into an official position, you might have them swear on you know, God, the Constitution, and their mother's grave, or something like that. If you're going to deputize somebody, you might do it in the name of the country, the mayor, and the town. So I don't see any problem in invoking things of very different ontological categories, such as God, a creature, and a power of God. And by the way, to say that for any kind of Christians, even biblical Unitarians, Jesus is a creature that's kind of a goofy, almost offensive understatement. It's like referring to God as some being or other. Biblical Unitarians think that Jesus is a creature, but they think he's the miraculously conceived Son of God, the Messiah, the risen and exalted Lord who's worthy of worship. So if you want to call that a creature, well, that's not a very good description. The orthodox view. They said, despite whatever problems it has, it seems to be the, the way that's got the most going for it as for explaining the text and our experience and what we've learned. With that note, Dr. Bird ends his rebuttal. And I think it's an important note. Whatever you think the Trinity is, you can't defend it by saying it's explicitly taught in Scripture, because it's not. You can't say it's something the Jews always believed, because it's not. You can't say it's something that was always believed by Christians because that's not so. What you can say is that of the competing theories, this one best fits with what the scriptures say and with what they don't say, and maybe also with Christian experience. Of course, it's one thing to say that your theory is the best out of all the competing ones, and it's something very different and much harder, and it's something which almost no Trinitarian and hardly any Unitarians even try to actually show that it's better than all the competing views or all the decently motivated and clearly articulated competing views. 
that requires going through the ins and outs of the competing views, which is almost never done. My point is he's right. It's what best explains the scriptures, what best helps us to make sense of them. That's the real issue. But just saying that, quote, the orthodox view, granting for the moment that there is a orthodox view, to say that that's the best explanation, well, a person may say that, a person may believe it, but to show it is actually quite difficult. All in all, what should we say about this first round? The parts that stand out to me are that Dr. Ehrman contrasted the 4th century debates with what you see in the Gospel of Mark. And yeah, they belong to two different universes, practically. Not the same questions being debated. There was a lot of development between the two, and there's a big story to tell there, and Dr. Ehrman told part of it. Dr. Ehrman pointed out something really obvious about the New Testament, although it's something that I for a long time overlooked, and I suspect other people overlook it pretty often as well. This is the theme in the apostolic preaching of the exaltation of the risen Jesus. It's a prominent theme in Acts, and they explicitly say that he was made son in some sense, or even made the Christ. And to be made divine in that way, where you're given eternal life and exalted to God's right hand, does not obviously require being equally divine with God, or divine in the same way that God is. And it doesn't obviously require the classical two natures doctrine that you see formulated at the Council in 451. In reply, Dr. Bird basically agrees. He thinks an important difference between Jesus' exaltation and other people's exaltation is that they can't be worshipped, in some sense of the word worship. That's a point that needs some following up on. It's definitely right that not everyone who's said to be exalted is put in a position of worship, and yet you do have talk in the Bible of people worshiping God and the King, and you do have the wise men, quote, worshiping Jesus, but presumably that's because they believed that he was destined to be a king, so that was more bowing the knee, doing obeisance like you do to a royal, such as a king or an emperor. But he concedes correctly that the Trinity language arose much later, that it was the result of many heated debates. He seems like he wants to say that it's just a verbal development, but at the same time he's conceding that, no, it's a substantial development and disagreement in the mainstream tradition. That's right. He says this 4th century creedal trinity language best explains the Bible. That's a very bold claim, and it needs to be argued for. Obviously, you can't do that in your short rebuttal period. Dr. Bird has also promised to show that in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is not, quote, a mere man. Traditionally, that means that he has a divine nature. He's not just a human being through whom God is working miracles, or in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, or something like that. No, he's a human divine being. He's a God-man. We'll have to see, then, what his argument is. On the face of it, the Gospel according to Mark, loudly and often and explicitly presents Jesus as the Messiah, which is to say, the Son of God. The Messiah is by definition a human. Son of God seems to basically mean the same thing as Messiah. It's a kingly term. So where then does the Gospel of Mark say that he's divine in a very high sense? And this for his whole life, and presumably for all eternity. In next week's podcast, my review of Dr. Bird's statement and Dr. Ehrman's rebuttal and some of the discussion time as well. The 
This week's Thinking Music has been Call for Surrender by Jesse Spillane. There's a link where you can listen to or download that entire track at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Before we go, thanks to Paul in Minnesota for your PayPal donation and also for your encouraging and interesting note. I will be getting back to you, so stay tuned. Do you enjoy listening to the Trinity's podcast? There are four ways you can show us some love in return. First, share the blog post for this episode on whatever social media you use, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, or Google+. Second, you can leave us a rating and a brief review in the iTunes store and at Stitcher. For step-by-step directions on how to do this, visit trinities.org blog review. Doing this will help other people who are interested in theology to find this podcast. Third, you can donate to the cause by clicking the orange donate buttons to the right of any blog post. Do you think these episodes are worth a quarter apiece? If so, you can donate a dollar each month via PayPal. And of course, any one-time gift is much appreciated. Fourth, you can send us some brief, to-the-point audio feedback for possible incorporation into a future episode. We would love to hear your question or your comment in your voice. The upload link for your audio file is on the blog post for any episode. To sum up, you can share, rate, donate, and talk back. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.